talk about offshore cryptocurrency exchanges. I think the big names are Bitfinex, which is the exchange that is also controlling Tether, Binance, which is CZ, Chenping Zhao's exchange, who is recently most famous for tanking FTX by dumping the FTT token that was on their books. And then, of course, there's the fallen FTX. Huobi is sort of a Chinese exchange that then became an offshore exchange when China banned Bitcoin exchanges on the mainland. So do we think they're based in Hong Kong now? I'm just not sure if they're Singaporean or Hong Kong at this point. But they were Chinese, but then they had to get out of there. And they were huge because Huobi was a clearing ground for the plus token whale. Plus token was a huge crypto Ponzi scheme on the Chinese mainland. So these exchanges are kind of really big in certain markets, but maybe they're not set up to do KYC with non-Chinese or something. So maybe a lot of international traders don't trade on there, or maybe the interface is kind of more Chinese focused. There's been some news that they've had big outflows, but I mean, it's really just $61 million in 24 hours. That's not a huge number, but it's coupled with kind of rumors that they're shutting down their internal chat system, they're firing 20% of their staff and stuff. So that's probably bad news, but is it we're going insolvent <laughs> news? Yeah. The answer is, if you listen to this show, you don't care because no one here keeps their coins on exchanges. So when exchanges go down, they're just like, ha, huh, that's fun. Right. Get the popcorn. If you're worried about news like that, you've definitely got coins on exchange and need to learn about self-custody is my two cents. We've really just seen coverage of U.S. exchanges or, you know, things like Celsius, groups like Celsius that have had problems. Where is Celsius based? Oh, New Jersey. No. Celsius Network LLC, headquartered in, yeah, New Jersey. That's so weird because New York is so famous for their strict bit license yeah. that frightened off all the crypto yeah. businesses, but then you've got a crypto Ponzi scheme in New Jersey. Also, as we're recording, there are tweets going out that the stablecoin for the uh, Huawei exchange, or however you say it, is depegging as well. And the Tron stablecoin, right? Yeah, I think that's as we're recording around 8 or 9% down right now uh, because, yeah, the Tron co-founder is also at the exchange. When a stablecoin begins to depeg like this, that's really problematic because stablecoins are supposed to be stable. So if they can't even <laughs> hold their stable oh. valuation, that's bad for everything that's built around them because they're often used as collateral inside various DeFi contracts or even collateral for loans issued in other currencies. So when they start depegging, it's like a fundamental low building block and the Jenga tower of finance is being pulled out and it can cause collapses. Dad, what if I told you there is no stable coin? Is it you, Michael? Michael Saylor? Is that you? <laughs> There's no second best. There's no second best. <laughs> He's right about that. This is the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on January 6th, 2023, the first episode of a new year. And joining you as always, I'm your Bitcoin Dad and I'm here with me. Uh, it's Chris. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. There's a huge amount of dramatic crypto industry news. And I think we touched on some of the gossip floating around, which will probably be out of date by the time this is released. But we thought that we'd take kind of a higher view, uh, start the new year with some Bitcoin basics, and also just sort of a more general context view on Bitcoin adoption, incentives in the traditional financial system, some sort of terrible privacy news and why it'll be ignored, but is also 
concerning. And we're going to have a Bitcoin education section, which will be a discussion of Bitcoin at a very high level. So very suitable for a new listener or someone who just wants to think about the Bitcoin fundamentals, get more comfortable with those ideas. But we will then take a hard right into the history of the Bitcoin core software client development and some changes that were made far, far in the past, which we can still see in the code. Then we'll have some boosts. And that's a show. Sure is a show. It's uh, kicking off the new year with some, well, I don't know, there's at least some bullish trends. We could. Why don't we start with maybe kind of good news, mixed bag news. I actually feel like the signal in this is probably good for Bitcoin, but there's a lot of other NFT stuff in here. But, you know, it's a good starting spot. We want to talk about generally Bitcoin adoption, because at the end of the day, it only is useful if people use it. So adoption is an important thing to understand and look at. And Sean Judge, who is a GP at Castle Island Ventures, which is famously the venture firm of Nick Carter, who's alternatively been a hero of Bitcoin and criticized for not being Bitcoin only. They have a list of crypto bullish news from the last year. And I think it reveals something interesting about how institutions interact with Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. I think it's kind of a mixed bag trend. Um, Like the NASDAQ has announced plans to offer crypto custody services. Um, The New York Stock Exchange has filed patents showing plans to offer digital assets potentially on the exchange. That to me is perhaps some of the strongest signal in this article because it indicates, I think, where the next bull run is going to take place. For better or for worse, I think we're going to have to wait through a lot of regulation and the dust to settle for the policies around the um, fallout of FTX, right? We have more to come there. And I think the trust that has been lost in crypto as a brand doesn't come back until institutions like the New York Stock Exchange and the NASDAQ are offering crypto services, right? And there's some other really big financial institutions in here as well, like Goldman Sachs, BlackRock, Citi. They're also doing initiatives around that. They're going to become the sellers. They're going to become the exchanges, essentially. You know, so serious investors are going to interface with these established banks. And that's going to probably take care of the trust issue there. And I think that's going to bring in a lot of institutional buying for better or for worse. So I think that's the really interesting thing in this summary of stories. Even though it's been a massacre for Bitcoin and crypto markets, it's not like previous cycles where in the bear market, everyone said, well, this whole thing's dead. It was a good joke. Let's move on and do traditional banking again. What we're seeing is traditional financial institutions getting deeper into crypto, even though it's a bear market. They're building the longer term pipeline, right? Because, you know, the companies can like kind of outsource something and kind of touch at it, you know, integrate with something just kind of on the edges, or they can really deeply kind of shift as a company and build a pipeline. Goldman Sachs during the bear market is experimenting with their Bitcoin backed loans for some of their most valued customers. That's Goldman Sachs, right? That's a big deal. The fact that they're setting up these policies and creating and getting these patents right now to me indicates they're expecting to turn around at some point. Now, here's the kind of shocking thing about the summary. This is a good list. And what it really indicates is there is something about NFTs that really appeals to these companies. Um, when you go through here, so many companies are getting involved with NFTs, Nike, Walmart, Chipotle, Ticketmaster, Reddit, Starbucks, Gucci, Parada, 
Tiffany's, on and on. It goes on and on. They're selling, they're getting into the NFT game. They love these crap coins and they love these stupid digital assets that they think they can sell to customers for, you know, basically nothing but profit. But when you talk about how institutions are integrating deeper with crypto in the bear market, that is interesting because I remember that BlackRock, which is the world's largest asset manager, is famous because they have this internal trading and risk control system called Aladdin, which apparently is just this nightmare IT system to set up. But once you get it set up, they say that it's their secret sauce. And that might be marketing, but there might actually be something there with having like a unified IT and financial risk control system throughout the entire company. If you can make something like that work, it leads to like a very controlled, focused company, maybe, is the marketing, I think. And they're actually integrating Coinbase into Aladdin. So they've got some sort of API access to Coinbase so they can start integrating crypto trades into their risk control system. So this is, in my view, a sign of deep integration. And in some ways, that would be very worrying, I think, because financial institutions in the traditional system are structurally fragile in that they take funds and they lend them out and they count as assets loans they own to other counterparties, which means their asset is a liability of a counterparty. And this is a system of contagion where when the market goes down and and people have to write down their assets, these assets are a liability of another counterparty. Liabilities are being written down. Assets are being written down. It's like when a stable coin depegs. It can cause insolvency at a system level. And now BlackRock via their internal system is plugging into Coinbase. It's probably a small project right now. But if that's the trend, I would say it's very dangerous to integrate with crypto for our traditional financial system because it just has different sort of risk requirements. And like you said, there is some Bitcoin news in here, some some very positive Bitcoin news. Like there's a Bitcoin 401k product from from Fidelity, which could be very useful. Your buddy Liz Warren is fighting like hell to stop. But the majority of news is about altcoin nonsense. And altcoins are being built into these traditional financial players. And frankly, I think that's on the one hand, it's scary because traditional finance is fragile and they're adding in scam assets that are incredibly volatile and will likely go to zero. So that speaks poorly for financial system stability. But the broader question is, why are they so fascinated with these garbage altcoins? Why is Ethereum so sexy? What is it about Bitcoin that they're not seeing? Are they right and are we wrong? Are we the crazy ones? Do you ever think that, Chris? No, no, because I think I I understand why, uh, but I do find it deeply frustrating still. I also don't agree that there's even necessarily a market for most of these things that they're going to attempt. I think they're drawn to things like Ethereum and Polygon and Solana for the wrong reasons under an echo chamber that makes them believe that there's going to be these rabid fans that want to buy their little badges and add them to their little commercial app that's somehow they've gotten you to install so that way you can order your coffee. And yeah, some people will bite, but I don't think it's ever going to replace selling goods in a store or actually shipping a physical product or, you know, drinking the coffee, but they'd love it to because they make it once, you know, they commission an artist to make a badge or make a little profile thing once, and then they can sell it to infinity. So they love the idea. I just don't think there is a strong demand for it other than perhaps in my kids. My kids may prop up this market alone, but outside of that, I don't know if there's a strong demand. So I don't know if I if think they're going to go very far, but I, I find it frustrating because I wish they would spend this time in integrating lightning and things like that. I wish that's what they were when they were investing in quote unquote crypto. I wish it wasn't they were investing lightning payments into their app, into their kiosk instead of playing around with uh, some sort of uh Matic blockchain JPEG. I view NFTs as the 20 
first century equivalent of the company store of the Great Depression. If you read The Grapes of Wrath, there's the story of an Oklahoma family that loses their farm in the Great Depression to the bank. And then they travel as migrant farm workers to California and they work on a farm where you're only paid in, maybe you're paid in cash, but you there's only one store that the company owns for 50 or 60 miles. So you have to shop there. And the prices are so jacked up that you just spend your whole wage and then go into debt shopping at this store. And so I think that company money, company script, company stores, that was a way for businesses to essentially just suck value out of people as employees. And NFTs are a way to suck value out of people and give them nothing in return. So I think there's sort of something similar going on there. So as a company, if you can find a way to create something almost costlessly and exchange it for real value, you're going to try and pump that idea. Ultimately, it seems to work best on people who, and not to be dismissive of your children, are not fully mentally developed. So children are not legally responsible for their actions because they're not ready cognitively for that responsibility. And this seems to be a target for a lot of business models that seem to be centered to the metaverse in Web3. Things like Roblox, Roblox and those scams. Yeah. Yep. NFTs, yep. things like that. Kids love them, but kids aren't grownups. I think also these companies are betting. They're kind of making the Apple and Google bet. You know how they get into the schools and, you know, Apple tries to they have a discount price for schools to try to get kids using Macs. And Google tries to here in the States, tries to get as many kids using Chromebooks as possible. So that way they become Google consumers in their adult life. Microsoft does special licensing with schools in the hopes that students will get hooked on Microsoft Office when they get into the professional life. And I wonder if there isn't something of that kind of mentality here is they see that things are getting scarce. Supply chains are going to get more expensive. Globalization is taking a step back. Manufacturing is going to move back to more regional areas where costs are going to go up. So it's just going to get, I think, more culturally acceptable to invest in digital things. And then society is going to have to come through this whole process of understanding there's scarce digital things and there's infinite digital things. And they're going to have to wrap their noodles around that. And it's just not something they have to think about right now because, you know, you could go buy a Starbucks mug, but you know, there's, you know, there's not infinite Starbucks mugs, but there's a lot of them and you just figure it's fine. You don't really think about it much. We're just, we don't think about it in the physical world. It's just not really something we have to deal with, but it is going to be a big deal in the digital world more so than ever. And I think that's why these companies like these altcoins. It's not a finite mentality. It's not a scarcity mentality. It's an infinite mentality. It is a spin things up easily. It's not scammy. It's just low effort. They need low effort, quick, cheap to go to market, easy to make a buck. It's interesting. I definitely agree with your latter part where the culture of NFTs and altcoins, which is kind of loose money, it'll go to the moon, don't worry about it culture. I think that definitely fits with the business environment since the 2000 tech bubble, because it's just been this monetary expansion and a lot of crazy ideas made a lot of people a lot of money. So business people have been trained to think like that. But then when you talk about digital scarcity or digital items competing with real world goods and real world goods getting so expensive that people are kind of pushed into buying digital stuff as a substitute, I guess I don't see that substitution because I would think that if prices are going up, what would happen would people would stop buying non-essential things. They would sort of, their disposable income would be squeezed. And I view digital trinkets like NFTs as the ultimate in disposable income. They're completely useless. 
in a sense, if you don't think Bitcoin is money, Bitcoin is the same thing. It's a digital collectible if you don't think it's money or has a monetary property. And with these NFTs, they're not saying there's a monetary property. They might, they might be hinting that you could speculate on it, but no one's saying this is money. So I guess I see rising prices from supply chain and inflation in general, perhaps pushing NFTs out of people's purchasing and less demand. I wish I saw a compelling use case for an NFT. I felt like when I first learned about the technology, I thought, I know these are really cliche examples, but I thought it is sort of funny that when I'm in Texas, when I'm traveling with my RV in Texas, there's been times where I've needed documents that I had to get from the state of Washington. And like our best option is all like snail mail, physical, go there, ask for the records. I just felt like, wow, this is really silly. And like I got married in Arizona, but I live in the Seattle area. When I want to get my my marriage certificate, <laughs> I, have to, I have to get it from the state of Arizona. It's so silly. It just seems so archaic that it's in a drawer somewhere in the state of Arizona. It's so funny. And it's literally filed away in a drawer somewhere and I can ask for a copy of it. <laughs> Life hack. If you get married or you have a child, request at least 10 copies of each certificate. When you have that event happen, always get 10 copies. That's a great tip. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm not saying I want NFTs to solve this, but I'm surprised I don't see some organization at least taking a crack at this because like the argument for it seems to be clear. I don't know if it would work, but instead it's these silly things. It's just silly things. But that's the entire concept of the startup DocuSign, right? Because they have this ability to sort of sign documents digitally that they market as being able to do physical document signing and confirmation, but remotely. That's a whole business based around that. And I think they got a billion dollar valuation. I think they were a unicorn. I don't know. I think actually what would be really neat if I could wave a magic wand is that these companies would be kind of following the fountain model, the fountain FM model. And maybe when you're in the store or when you're using the app, they stream you sats. Or if you buy something, if you order your coffee through the app, you get sat rewards. That would be really compelling. But, you know, they're not going to. But that is legitimately, I think, a competitive market offer because I don't want their token. I don't want their, you know, their coin that's been derived from some SDK that they spent six months just rebranding. I, I want sats. But that would be my magic wand wish. DocuSign is down to $54 from $310 mm. at the end of 2021. I saw that it's something over $7 trillion in value that the tech stocks have lost. That's like... <laughs> The whole crypto, that's more than the, the whole cryptocurrency market combined is under a trillion dollars now. This is not a bad idea, what this company is doing. I think it is a bad investment, though, at a billion dollars. Mm -hmm. I think that's true of a lot of tech companies and startups, but also of potentially some crypto technologies, like maybe NFTs. It's not going to be anywhere near the market cap of Bitcoin, but there might be useful technology here someday. Does that mean it's going to be a multi-chain world? Or are they going to just somehow do it on a bit? You, you think somehow, somehow these companies would come to their senses and use a side chain or something like that? I just don't see it at this point. If there's a really good side chain, they'll use it. So I think liquid is maybe not useful enough yet, potentially. I do think there's some really good news in here. And I'd love to see this narrative take off over 2023. ConocoPhillips, Exxon, and Shell are all either beginning, have begun, or about to begin methane capture Bitcoin mining. That seems like a giant development. ConocoPhillips is selling excess natural gas to Bitcoin mining companies directly. Uh, Exxon has also been rumored to sell excess natural gas to Bitcoin miners since 2021. And Shell is entering the space 
as a sponsor speaker for Bitcoin 2023 event. Shell's going to be sponsoring. So they're trying to get their name out there. These large energy companies uh, could get a lot of, you know, Bitcoin companies out there doing this methane captured to do the mining. That is a fantastic green narrative for Bitcoin. In fact, the green narrative for Bitcoin could be really good over 2023 if they can actually get the message out there. I saw that and I thought it was funny because incentivizing methane capture is just 100% improvement for emissions and the environment, regardless of what you think about global warming. But those are three of the most vilified companies in the world in some political circles. So it's just funny that that's the Mm -hmm. positive Bitcoin news. And I just wanted to finish by pointing out that Starbucks and Chipotle were, there was an article about them receiving crypto payments in the block. And this came out in June of 2022. But when you dig a little deeper, they're using this Flexa network and they don't accept Bitcoin. They only accept the most garbage altcoins I've ever seen. So they accept some stable coins. They accept USD, Pax Dollar, and Binance USD, and DAI. So not exactly... What? It's USD coin. I thought it was Circle USD. No, it's USD coin. I've never heard of that. So basically, they're doing crypto payments, but it's like a scam, this platform. They're accepting Frax. What the heck is Frax? Or Gaian. And they're doing magic internet money. Literally called magic internet money. So this is a joke. Supported digital dollars. So are these maybe, so maybe all these claim to be, yeah, all these claim to be stable coins. And then you can use, uh, they, they do support uh, some digital tokens like Avahe or whatever it's called. AMP, because, you know, ApeCoin, they'll take ApeCoin. I've never even heard of some of these. They take Adam. They'll take your crypto.com token. <laughs> so this is garbage, garbage, altcoin, DeFi, DGen, stay away. They currently have Luna listed as one of the supported currencies that they accept. They have Luna on here. Good job, Starbucks and Chipotle. This, this, to support this many currencies, I'm scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. I'm naming about one out of 10 that I scroll past. To support this many, could you imagine how duct taped and bubblegum together that backend infrastructure must be? In general, IT that doesn't involve a situation where people can hack your computers and literally steal money, like just doing boring stuff like running IT systems, it's already difficult to prevent hackers and things from breaking. And then you take infrastructure and then you hide like 99 different potential monies, each with their different attack surface and security holes. And then you're like, let's rely on this. It's so crazy. It's wild because they're either like running hundreds of nodes or they're taking on some third party risk and they're using like an API and it's a hosted solution. And then at that point, like got to be hosted. Well, then that's just as bad as the traditional financial institution. It's it's even worse. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because you've got the counterparty risk of a traditional financial institution, and you've got the technology risk of a crypto exchange that could be hacked and lose all, all their money. It's beautiful. Let's be fair. Like Financial companies take years to get this right, and all these companies have just come up in the last year or two. They're brand new companies. Their infrastructure is still new. Their crew is still new. They're just all green. It's really something. But full speed ahead, Chipotle. Enjoy. You know, and it's it's incredible because the Lightning Network is an open protocol. It's, you know, like you could just experiment with it on your own and then slowly roll it out. But no, they go this route instead. I think it's got to be because, um, you know, these uh, chains and these companies that offer these services, they have marketing departments that reach out to these big companies. Marketing department to marketing department. They establish a relationship. 
you know, and they sit down and they have a little conversation and there's nobody in Bitcoin reaching out to these companies and setting up a marketing meeting with one marketing manager to the other. (laughs) It's not happening in the Bitcoin town. So this next story is about a loan that Amazon has received for $8 billion and it matures in 364 days. So January 3rd, 2024. And it's for $8 billion. Did I say $8 billion before? $8 billion. That's a lot of money. Yeah. Now, this loan has an option to extend for an additional 364 days. So it's almost a two-year loan if Amazon wants it to be. Now, can you guess the interest rate? Don't look at the article. Just say an interest rate. What do you think Amazon's being charged from this loan? And I'll give you a hint. The two banks giving it are DBS Bank and Mijuho Bank, Singaporean and Japanese, respectively. Okay, if it was a U.S. bank, I was going to go high because that's what all the, you know, that's what the big buzz is right now. So the interest rates, the interest rates, but it's not. So I'm going to go low. Um, hmm, all right, 364 days. It's got to be low. So I'm going to say like 2%. The first year, it's 0.75% and it increases to (laughs) 1.05% if they extend it. That is a sweet deal. That's a sweet deal. Why is this interesting? It's interesting because this loan loses money. According to any measure of inflation, this loan is losing money. So why would two banks give Amazon $8 billion to lose money? The answer is in the location. We've got Singapore and Japan. And these are countries that hold dollar deposits. Their central banks, in fact, hold a lot of dollars, but also their commercial banking sector hold a lot of dollars because dollars are the international currency, the euro dollar, the petrodollar. This loan is not very long term. It's not like buying a 10-year bond. It's a one-year loan, so it's relatively short term. So they actually need to park dollars short term. And this interest rate, I think this is sort of close to a real interest rate right now for uh, in these sort of broken debt markets. Because what it shows you is that the Federal Reserve would like this interest rate to be whatever, 3.5% or whatever the interest rate on the Fed funds rate is now. But actually, in the Federal Reserve's model of the world, the Fed's funds rate should be the lowest interest rate in the world because it's the safest, because it's with the Fed. They can print money to pay you back. There's zero risk of not being paid back. But in the real economy, actually, money's being lent for lower than the Fed funds rate. Well, that doesn't make sense. Why would this loan to Amazon be safer than borrowing money from the Fed? And the answer is it's not. It's that the traditional financial system doesn't work the way the Fed says it does because it's very fractured. These banks in Singapore and Japan, they can't get the Fed's funds rate. So they can only lend to Amazon. When you'd say, okay, well, Amazon probably could get the Fed funds rate. So how come Amazon can demand a cheaper interest rate than the Fed? Because actually, the way that the credit markets have been affected by regulation and by risk and actual growth in the economy, there's actually a surplus of savings going to safe borrowers. Another way of saying that is that the people who can borrow in the world are a very small group, and they include Amazon and Microsoft and big companies. And the people who can't borrow cannot borrow money at any rate. And I think that this sort of describes that. This is just amazing, the numbers here, right? $8 billion and at a at a rate that when you account for inflation is, a, is they're making money is incredible. And this also comes on the heels of the leak that they're laying off now over 18,000 workers. So they're taking out an $8 billion loan and they're laying off 18,000 people. And they say they're taking this loan out and they're doing these layoffs for the same reason. They say they've evaluated their operating plan and they say they've entered into this loan agreement given the uncertain macroeconomic environment. And this is a quote, over the last few months, we've used different financing options to support capital expenditures, debt repayments, acquisitions, and working capital needs. In other words, money's, I think they expect 
revenues to go down, but they want to continue to operate at at least a certain capacity. So they're going to lay off 18,000 people. They're going to take on an $8 billion loan, and they're going to try to find a middle ground where they can keep some things running. And the word is that a lot of the layoffs are coming from more of the white collar areas of Amazon, like perhaps the Echo Division and things like that. Yeah. When money tightens, all of the moonshot projects, like all of the altcoins, deflate. It essentially means that if interest rates are very low, the difference between a one-year loan and a 30-year loan, there's not a huge difference there. And so it means that a project that could make you a billion dollars in 30 years is worth the same as a project that makes you a billion dollars in one year, roughly. So that means that all of these pie-in-the-sky projects that'll take a long time to mature and actually make money, they're valuable today at lower interest rates. And so as interest rates increase, the opposite happens. And things like Amazon Echo or Tesla self-driving cars, because we know that they're years away, they suddenly are not worth as much because the cost to finance them until they finally produce a project is increasing. And they might go bankrupt in the meantime. I think it signals that 2023 is going to be a wild year. Brace for lower Bitcoin prices, the message I take from that. <laughs> Potentially, for sure. Yeah. And yeah. it's not just a wild year in Bitcoin and the tech sector. Did you see this article about ID laws in Louisiana? Oh, boy. This is pretty wild. So uh, I guess probably based on your IP, right? Pornhub has been basically ordered via legislation, right? They're going to be uh, ordered via legislation to require Louisiana visitors to identify themselves with a digital driver's license. They have this LA wallet app. And I got to say, dad, this is one of those things I hate when the conspiracy theorists are right. Like everybody has all these conspiracy theorists have said that if they start doing digital IDs, they're going to make you use it for all kinds of other things. It starts with one thing and then it expands. And we're see, we've seen that in China and we're seeing it here. It starts with a digital driver's license wallet app. And now you got to use that same app to get access to a porn site. So it's literally tied to your driver's license when you go to Pornhub. And just read the law in on the Louisiana books. Due to advances in technology, the universal availability of the internet and limited age verification requirements, minors are exposed to pornography earlier in age. Pornography contributes to the hypersexualization of teens and prepubescent children and may lead to low self-esteem, body image disorder, an increase in problematic sexual activity at younger ages. Actually, I don't think that's true. And increased desire among adolescents to engage in risky sexual behavior. Again, I don't think that's true because actually the trend in millennials is to have less sex than previous generations. Millennials were exposed to more porn than previous generations. So when you read the law on its surface, it actually doesn't seem so unreasonable, right? Because obviously you don't want young children watching porn could really mess them up, supposedly. That said, if you start requiring IDs for people to watch porn, I think that drives porn watching underground and maybe makes it more risky. Like if it's less regulated, maybe then the porn sites are more willing to put even more disturbing and illegal content up there. Because if you have to give your driver's license to visit Pornhub, you know every Louisiana politician is going to be doxxed when that database leaks and they're all on Pornhub, right? Oh, I hope so. Every single one of them. Because the thing is, Porn is so ubiquitous that you can't even study porn. What would he mean? Well, you can't find a control group of like young men who haven't seen porn. The moment young men get the internet, they look at porn. So you can't even study the effects on a population that hasn't been exposed because you'd have to find a Stone Age tribe that doesn't have knowledge of the modern world and the internet to use as a control group. I'm also just generally concerned with locking anything behind this digital driver's license app because It's only available in the iOS 
App Store and in the Google Play Store. So if you have a device like mine that doesn't have access to either one of those potentially, then you don't get this app. And the more things that they tie this to, the more disadvantaged you're going to be. What population do you think that's probably going to affect the most? Probably people that have low cost, cheap phones, which are probably the impoverished. So the impoverished are going to get screwed the most by this kind of stuff. Or people like me who are trying to take digital privacy and security seriously. And we're going to get screwed by this kind of stuff. And I just hate this. It's this expansion of the use of what they call their legal digital driver's license into more realms that is the same concern people brought up about vaccine passports, which did happen in China. And it just makes me hesitant to use technology like this. I'm going to fight adoption like this in my own state because I don't want this to happen to me. And um, I think you're right, too. Like if I had to show ID to go to a porn site, I would just probably try to find a porn site that didn't require that. There's lots of porn on the Internet. And you can't enforce this law everywhere in the world. It only is applicable to Louisiana. So that means that right. you can always use a VPN to yeah. get yeah. out yeah. of the state and not show your ID. Again, that means that you have to pay for a VPN. Yeah, but a state a state legislator is trying to regulate the worldwide internet. There's going to be a million ways to get around that. And so then they're going to say, well, now VPNs aren't allowed. Well, if we can't have VPNs, we can't have a lot of privacy on the internet goes away. And Louisiana wasn't the state where the governor sued a journalist for looking at a web page or, or tried to get them thrown in jail, right? Because there was a web page that was like <laughs> leaking <laughs> teacher I don't know. social security numbers and the journalist oh, pointed geez. it out and then was accused of hacking. Oh, right. So yeah. this is the sort of region where those crazy claims are made. So people actually need VPNs and technology to protect themselves from the terrible politicians who would push through a terrible law like this. Yeah, it's always done in the name of protecting the children as well. And then, of course, the actual legislation that would improve the lives of children gets ignored. I just couldn't do it. I just don't know how these monsters do it. So we'll see where that goes. It's something to keep an eye on because you could see that kind of thing taking off. And then additionally, I think there's going to be other types of digital ID that they're going to track. This, I think, is only beginning. Not to be a downer about it, but I think it's only beginning. I just couldn't do it. I don't know how these monsters do it, but... The monster is the politicians who passed this law? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're either greedy and getting paid off or they're ignorant and their ignorance is costing is causing real harm to the people that are subject to their ignorance. Either way, they're horrible people. They might think they're saving children. I used to think that too, but they use it for everything. So they just too cynical. In their mind, we're the bad people. Right. Because we just want everybody to look at pornography all day long. And, you know, we hate the traditional family. And yeah, either that or we're crazy libertarians. Worship Satan. You know, that's probably what they think about us. The last privacy news is it's just a PSA. Everyone needs to use uBlock Origin. It makes the internet tolerable. And I realized because I was using a different browser to research the show. I had uBlock Origin installed, but I didn't have the annoyances filters turned on, and I couldn't use websites like The Block because there were so many pop-ups. I couldn't close them all. It just broke. Link in the show notes. Install uBlock Origin in your browser and enable the annoyance filters. It'll improve your life so much. It's like a quality of life war that's going on, and you would think that they would give up on... Uh... They, this display ad market, but they just double down with more and more and more. And then newsletters and pop-ups about cookies. It's gotten so, so bad. And uBlock is great for that. And I don't like to steal content. So like I subscribe to LWN, I subscribe to Pharonix. So if I use, if I go to a site frequently, regularly, and I'm blocking their ads, I'll try to support them. But this just is, again, people could follow the fountain model. It's just stream some sats. I could load up an Albi wallet with a thousand sats. 10,000 sats and just stream sats while I'm on these sites. And when I move on. Websites and 
journalists and content creators who rely on ads, I think there's this attitude like, well, you could at least look at the ads on my site that would really help me. And it's like, well, it doesn't seem like you're asking a lot of me to just look at those ads. But actually, those ads are filling me with rage. And I've literally never clicked on one. So I don't want to do that. I would much rather pay you something so that you don't do that. They're also just bad ads, right? Like there's a difference between good ads that are actually relevant to the audience. Like, you know, if we mention other podcasts, we do like, we'll do an ad for self-hosted, right? That's because that's a relevant ad. It's not like this, try out this product, try this thing. And you're like, I'm already on this website to do a task. I'm not going to click off and go buy this product when I'm in the middle of trying to do something like that's a ludicrous concept to begin with. Right. <laughs> it's so funny. And a lot of ads are scams are crypto scams, gambling scams, just lose your personal mm-hmm. identity scam. So you're fielding dangerous content. And I mean, that's also a criticism we've had of crypto and Bitcoin influencers, podcasters, yeah, YouTube yeah. creators, because yes. all of the ad d- dollars in the space are for scams, other than a very few number of Bitcoin only companies and products. You might say, okay, well, so-and-so produces a good podcast and they have a bad sponsor, but I mean, it's worth it because it, it, it produ- that sponsor enables the podcast. And I'd say, no, that actually ruins the podcast because if someone is doing a good job, but then they're promoting a scam, they're putting all of their effort. I mean, it, not intentionally, but all of their effort legitimizes that scam. And it's not harmless. You know, people do click on those things. So if you have something scammy mm-hmm. like Nexo, <laughs> you know, which is Celsius scam lender yeah. or Ponzi schemes. Celsius was a big one in the YouTube space. Uh, I checked a YouTube influencers uh, bit.ly link and uh, they had over 860 clicks for their Celsius referral link. And so that influencer lost potentially 860 people all their money. Good job. Yeah, it's a tricky thing, right? Not to make it a big value for value ramp, but while we're just on this trajectory, the other thing about the boost and value for value, whatever, even if it's for some other thing besides boost, is it's all transparent to the audience. You know where the funds came from, you know when they came in, you know the motivation, everything, because the message is attached in the case of the boost. It's all out there in front of the audience. Ad deals are done in the back office between the business and the other business. You don't know any of the details. You don't know any of the terms. You just have to hope, I guess, that the host has done a good job of making sure that they're a legitimate company and screening them and doing the due diligence. And they don't. No one does. The moment money is involved, no one does due diligence because even the New Yorker magazine, which has that very famous podcast, they had crypto scam type ads. I'm not sure if it was Celsius or some other. And you had Scott Alloway reading crypto scam ads in his own voice. You legitimized a crypto scam. And however big your platform, you've just extracted value from your listeners. And it's so disrespectful. It screws up all your incentives. And I think a lot of people who have just, they've been in the ad-based model their whole life, they just like, well, yeah, that's how you do it. That's the cost of doing business. What do you want from me? What we want from you is, I know it's still early, but value for value solves the problem. We don't want to monetize attention. We want to monetize intention. It's a great way to put it. Yeah. We want to monetize the quality of information and value, which incentivizes us to work to make a good product when we get rewarded for that particular behavior versus getting rewarded for, you know, getting the numbers up high enough to get a great ad deal. It's a long process. It's a completely different mindset. I think the big struggle is so people are just used to the other model. It's been that way in television and radio and podcasting for so long 
that the value for value model, I think, is maybe a little abrasive to some people and they don't really wrap their noodle around it fully. And the trouble is, is that it's a network effect. It's like people won't go to the value for value direction unless they see other podcasters being successful at it. And it's a really tricky kind of balance because there's going to be this point where there's just only a few handful of podcasts that are doing the model and then that'll build and others will see it and they'll be influenced. But until we get to that point where people see success at it, I don't think you're going to I don't think you're going to get people to give up, you know, easy ad money. Because if you get your show and, you know, depending on your topic, you can get a bigger audience, especially if it's clickbaity, you can get your numbers up to where you can start selling dynamic ads pretty easily because they'll start contacting you. And I mean, I get these every day. Um, last week, I got more emails from people trying to sell me quick, cheap ads, ads on Coda Radio than I actually got emails from Coda Radio listeners. It's bad right now. I even get more emails for scammy products than I get feedback. And this is a tiny podcast by comparison. You know, they go to the directories because of the way that works right now. Our email addresses have to be in the RSS feed in order to submit them to the directories. Although that's changing thanks to podcasting 2.0 and Apple's actually adopting that standard. So email addresses will be going away. But so they get all of our email addresses that way. So they have all of the podcasters email addresses because they can just get get it from the RSS feeds from the directories. So it's really low effort. And the audience, I don't think, has any any idea. Um, and, I, and I could go on and on about this forever. I hope more with the podcasting to the apps, I hope more podcasts transition to value for value. It's also a little bit different of a business model too. So it's, it requires some change on the back end. Again, I, I also prefer this because a decade ago I worked with someone who uh, got paid for every episode that they did, uh, but they requested it in cash. So that way it could be private from a family member. They didn't want the family member to know that they had this money. And so they asked for payment in cash and I obliged. It was a huge pain in my butt because I hate dealing with cash back then. I'm much more appreciative of it now, but back then I hated it and I hated going to the ATM. So um, I remember very painfully getting the cash every, every, uh, I, I paid them once a month. <clears throat> and then later on publicly, this individual claimed I never paid them. Uh, they claimed that after all those, all those years and everything they did, I, that, that I took all the money and I never paid them. So they were working for free for years and you're like, don't worry, just wait one more month. I'll pay you at the end of it. And it's like 18 months later or four or five, six, seven years. Yeah. So their argument was I'm the stupidest person in the world. And also Chris is bad. Yeah, I'm a bad guy is really what they were trying to say. But the thing is with value for value, specifically with lightning, it's in the splits. You know what? It's undeniable. It's in the feed. It's in the splits. It's all there. As a user, you can see where your funds go, where your sats go. It's all completely transparent. And as somebody who has been on the end of being accused that I didn't pay somebody when I did, I really prefer that too. The audience gets to see everything, the amounts, who's getting paid, all of it. And to me, that's the only way you can really trust what they're saying. I'm sorry to make this such a long thing, but Bitcoin uniquely enables this kind of model right now, specifically the Lightning Network, really, at a time when we have a bankruptcy in trust. And I just think it is actually a remarkable example of the types of things Bitcoin could help change. So we'll do a quick ad read this week because Chris was just talking about his other shows. The self-hosted show is a sponsor of the Bitcoin Dad Pod. It involves two men talking about deploying software and hardware at home to provide services for themselves and their family. It's totally cool. They've been looking at Jellyfin recently, which is a home media server, an alternative to your Netflix subscription. Check it out at selfhosted.show. Two manly men. Which brings us to Bitcoin education. And the links in the show docs are of a Stack Overflow or Stack Exchange. What's the difference between Stack Overflow and Stack Exchange? I think Stack Overflow is perhaps the like developer version, right? Because you got all these different stacks. I don't know. Okay. I don't actually use any of these. I know I'm such a Luddite. Well, this is how you do your job in industry. You just Google Stack 
exchange and then someone has run into the problem you have and you do it are you serious dude now you sound like an old man now what you do is you ask the chat gpt bot and it goes and gets the results from stack exchange come on and the results (laughs) blow up your computer because it has a superficial (laughs) understanding of issues no yeah because once you get the solution from stack exchange you do it and then someone's like oh dad knows how to solve that problem go ask him junior administrator then the junior admin comes over and you're like Jesus, junior administrator, they didn't even teach you this. And you just learned it five minutes before on Stack Exchange. That's the way you do it. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds about right. (laughs) This came from a conversation with Crypto Kyle about why Bitcoin Core supports a transaction index, but not an address index. That's the subject of the conversation online. I suggest you check it out. But it actually is the conclusion, I think, to a nicer, broader conversation about how Bitcoin actually works. We don't often talk about it. And I think it is useful to just describe the system at the beginning of the year for everybody, regardless of their level. All right. I love this idea. In fact, I think I could probably use a lot of refreshers. This could You could probably do a couple of these. Okay. So there's this term blockchain. I think Satoshi may have used the term time chain. Peter Todd, the core developer, prefers the term time chain. And this is important for creating consensus for everyone knowing who owns Bitcoin. Okay, so what does that mean? Bitcoin transactions are exchanges of value that are similar to handing someone physical cash in the sense that once I give you a Bitcoin and we do a transaction that's mined in a block, it's like you took cash from me and you walked away. There's no way for me to claw it back. And that's kind of the killer app of Bitcoin. That's the innovation. It's digital scarcity. It's irreversible digital transactions, because as we know from using credit cards, whenever you make a credit card transaction, you can do a chargeback. You can call Visa. Visa has the ability to change the database of transactions and either give you your money back or let the merchant keep it. So how exactly does Bitcoin make transactions final, Chris? What is your quick explanation of how it does that? Well, it actually sounds like a really complicated question. I'm not sure exactly what angle to answer it, but I mean, I think most people would say, well, it writes it to a blockchain and then a bunch of nodes validate that and then it becomes history and then it's forever locked as the blockchain moves forward. Like, is that the level of answer you're looking for or are you looking for something else? No, I guess I don't know what I'm looking for, but I think that's a great answer. And that is what happens at a high level because we make a transaction, the transaction goes into the mempool of my Bitcoin node or your Bitcoin node. It propagates through the network. So it lives in the mempool of every or many nodes on the network. One of these nodes is a miner. They look at the transaction. They see a fee associated with it. They take the, they, they say, Hey, I'd like that fee. So they put the transaction along with others in a block. They start mining, which is this process of trying to find the next valid hash that will enable them to broadcast this block and have all the nodes accept it as the next valid block of the chain. And when they do that, this block appears, all the nodes see this block with a valid hash, our transaction is in it, we add it to the end of the chain, and we wait for the next block. And then as more blocks are built on top of it, it becomes harder to roll back this transaction. That's kind of the high level. But I guess what it doesn't explain is why, and I don't know if we should answer this now, but if all you need is a blockchain to make irreversible transactions, why can't we just create our own cryptocurrency? Like, why is Bitcoin secure, but Dadcoin and Chriscoin are not secure? Do you think that's important to talk about now, or is that that too broad? Well, it could be its own topic, but I suppose since you brought it up, we could just, you know, you could quickly say, 
I'd say it's a couple of things. It's the size of the Bitcoin network. That's indisputable. Ginormous, ginormous, ginormous amount of compute power beyond anything any other like supercomputer could produce. And tens of thousands, potentially. We don't know the, the complete number because of Tor, but over 15,000, I believe, was it nodes that you can see publicly that are distributed that are all protecting and validating the network, each one kind of acting as an auditor of the network. And that's a lot. Um, but then I think you also have to account for the uptime and just the overall age of the project, stability of the code, performance, the fact that it's proven itself, the fact that it's been copied 10,000 times and none of them have succeeded. You know, it's survived bear markets. You know, all of those things also contribute, I think, to what make it reliable and secure and all of that versus something like a Chris coin or a dad coin. Yeah, I think that's a great explanation. I, I was following along, but maybe this is a good point to move from the general discussion, which has obviously been unstructured and say, if there is an aspect of what we've just said that you want us to dive in deeper or put context around, please boost in because I feel myself losing the ability to explain things as I go deeper in. So it'd be really helpful to get some specific questions. Mm -hmm. And with that, I'd like to turn to this article about the Bitcoin Core transaction index. So if you've ever messed around with your Bitcoin Core configuration file, I know I have, there is this option to set TX index equals one. And you have to set TX index equals one if you want to run your own block explorer. So if you want to run mempool.space or Bitcoin RPC Explorer, which are little local web pages with applications that parse the Bitcoin blockchain and let you look up transactions and stuff. It's really cool because you can look up your own transactions. You can find your transactions in the node. It's a great way to just validate things. And it's also how blockchain sleuths discover where stolen coins went. You can use this to literally investigate any Bitcoin transaction that's ever been made. But why is it in the code? Because the TX index is obviously useful for having a blockchain explorer. But wouldn't it be great if there was an address index in the Bitcoin node? Because this address index would allow your wallet, like Electrum wallet or Sparrow wallet, to look up addresses really quickly and give you a great wallet experience using your own Bitcoin node. So why is there a transaction index, which seems to be only useful for like more analytics type stuff, but no address index, which is very specifically useful for running a wallet and doing self-custody. Do you have any thoughts on why that might be the case, Chris? No, you just got to tell me. Come on now. <laughs> You're such a tease. Oh, sorry. Well, no, I just because you you always have. I, like I love it when you just do an off the cuff. You often get. Oh, <laughs> I'm not. I'm sorry. No, I didn't I realize I'm, I'm, I'm baiting you because <laughs> you often guess it. You know, I was just like, wow, OK, that's great. The reason is because the transaction index actually used to be how Bitcoin validated blocks. It actually used to use the transaction index, not the UTXO set. And so in 2013, Bitcoin in version 0.8.0, Bitcoin Core actually added something called ultra prune, which means that the transaction index is not required for validating the blockchain. And instead, the validation could be derived directly from the blocks. You, you could, they could read the blocks in a more efficient way and store less data. Okay. And the reason there's not an address index is because every Bitcoin wallet wants a different flavor of address index. And so Bitcoin Core is like, we're not going to maintain that. Uh huh. The fact that there are all these nodes working so well around the world is because it's a really good software project. And so they've actually very carefully controlled the scope of the project 
and only supported things that they think are important for Bitcoin's decentralization and security, not for user convenience, actually. That is uh, that is a great little insight to how the project has kind of refined things. There is a bit of a history there. There'll be books written about these days. Books written, I tell you, perhaps. That's a nice little trivia. You know, I was just thinking while you were talking about that, I could see doing a segment on UTXOs specifically. I could also see talking a little bit more about coin control. That's an area I'd like to have a conversation about. So I don't, people should boost in and let us know what they'd like to hear about. Maybe that's too low level. Maybe they want something more basic beginning. You let us know, send the signal. And my New Year's resolution, which I hope I deliver on, is to produce more episodes that do respond to these requests, because I think there is a backlog of extra episodes about specifically useful things like buying Bitcoin peer-to-peer, running your own wallet, doing self-custody in a very in a more specific sort of actionable way. But we're going to get through that, and we're going to have a lot of hopefully very directly useful episodes going forward, I hope. I look forward to that. Curious to see what we get. Remember, you can get in touch with the show, BitcoinDadPod at ProtonMail.com or BitcoinDadPod on Twitter. Also consider joining the show Matrix channel hosted by Jupiter Broadcasting using a client like Element. Also, Fluffy Chat is getting really nice if you want something a little simpler. Links in the show notes. We had a few boosts this week. Yeah, you want me to take the first one here from True Grits? Came in with 6,000 sats. I agree with you guys on the tipping thing, which is why I subscribe to Jupiter.Party subscription for a little podcast network called Jupiter Broadcasting. You should all check it out. Uh, I wish the podcasting 2.0 spec would come up with a subscription model like you guys were talking about. You know, I think that the guys over there are open to expanding that eventually at some point. I think you have to be careful. You know, you want to get it to a really good, well-supported, well-adopted position. But um, you could think of streaming sats as basically a subscription that you can turn on and off, I suppose. Yeah, it's sort of like putting a price on your listening. You'd say, this is how much I want to pay. This is how much my time, my my mind space is worth. And it actually focuses the mind because when I stream sats, which I haven't been doing for the last couple of weeks because I think Fountain broke in an update. So I need to investigate Albi or something like that. If I'm going to criticize somebody and they take boost, I'll do it over a boost. I feel like if you're going to, you know, have something critical to say, it's nice to have a little bit of sugar with that medicine. I've been experimenting with 50 sats a minute. So, you know, it works out for like an hour long podcast. It's somewhere like around 3000 sats. If I listen to the full hour, been playing around a little bit with that. Podverse makes that pretty easy to do. But I like the messages. The last boost I just sent to a podcast I listened to, they nailed a segment. Like if I were going to put together a segment on this, I feel like did, I would have done it that way. I just really was impressed with how they like they clearly put a lot of thought because they it had a whole arc. It had a four piece arc. They started, they established something, they described the problem. Hold on. What was this podcast? I don't know if I want to say. I don't don't want to say it necessarily. Yeah, I'll tell you afterwards. Boost in for the answer. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. Yeah, you know what? I'll say it on air if somebody sends a 10,000 sat boost. Because I've done podcasts like this one before. So I sent him a little boost. It was my first boost into the show. I sent him a little boost just saying, hey, you know what? Great work on, uh, you know, that little piece of segment right there. I thought that was well done. And, you know, that kind of stuff is, I think, really enjoyable. Like, I was looking forward to that. You know, as soon as I heard it, as soon as, as, soon as they had that, that moment in the show, the whole rest of the drive, I'm like, as soon as I get parked, I'm going to send them that boost. And I did it. <laughs> Nomadicoder boosted in with 1,555 sats. WRT, forcing someone to perform a creative act. I believe the 13th Amendment would prohibit such an action. What does WRT mean? But thank you for the boost. Maybe it's got to be for something like for what it's worth. I don't know. But yeah, that's got to be in regards to uh, some legislation that was getting kicked around about uh, that would compel open source developers to write code. 
to give Craig Wright his coins, right? I need to clarify, Craig Wright has no coins. He has been trying to steal Satoshi's coins for 10 years. Oh, that's what it was, yes. Right. For Shackleford boosted with 5,000 sats, the signal to noise ratio is the term to use. Must have been, we must have made a mention about signal. I feel like this has become a meme in Bitcoin and I, I'm fine with it. But like, you know, when something's good, it's high signal, you know? And I guess maybe it's because there is so much noise in this space. So it, I think the term actually applies. Uh, thank you, everybody who boosts in. Uh, if you got some value from the show, please consider doing a boost. Uh, and hearing from you means a lot to us. Probably the easiest way to boost in without switching your podcast app would be to grab that Albi extension, getalbi.com, and then just boost from the podcast index website for the uh, Bitcoin dad entry. Just right there. Or you can get a podcasting 2.0 app, upgrade, get a whole bunch of new features, and join a new podcasting ecosystem. The Fountain app is really great. Podverse is fantastic. It's available for all the different platforms. And there's some other really great ones like Castomatic and others at newpodcastapps.com. This has been the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on January 6th, 2023. I've been your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here, as always, with uh, me, Chris. Uh, thanks for joining us, everybody. We'll see you next time.